like to welcome you to Prairie View this morning. We're glad you've chosen to worship here with us. As we come down through the home stretch of Ecclesiastes, we're going to be looking at another recurring theme that we've seen throughout the book. And that recurring theme is the problem of injustice. Now, so far, every theme we've looked at has reaffirmed the preacher's core value from the very beginning of the book that vanity of vanities, all is vanity. All is meaningless, confusion, frustration. Injustice in the world is yet another reason why the preacher has come to that dark and pessimistic conclusion about life. Now, I think most of us who live in the real world today would agree with the preacher that injustice is certainly a problem. Now, we look at it differently. Some of us look at injustice and think, you know, it's just a fact that life isn't fair. And the sooner you can come to grips with that, the sooner you can have peace with that, the better off you'll be. So just accept it, do your best and move on. Stop complaining. But some of us look at injustice in the world and we think, you know what? No. We shouldn't just accept this as a fact of life. We should get our butts in gear and we should try to do something about it. We should try to get rid of injustice. We should promote the cause of justice in every single phase of life that we can touch. These days, it seems like everyone, especially in my generation, wants to be an activist. Someone used the derogatory label social justice warrior. Even if the only contribution they ever make is to be outraged about the latest Internet hashtag. And yet, while nearly all of us would agree that injustice is a problem in some shape, form or fashion in our world today, another problem is that we can't all agree on what injustice really is. And if we can get to that point, we then can't agree about how to get rid of the injustice. There are countless examples that make the rounds on the news day in and day out. We see examples of racial tension or injustice with the Black Lives Matter movement or the recent events at the University of Missouri. We see what many perceive to be injustice when it comes to the debate between LGBT rights and religious freedom. We saw that in Indianapolis earlier this year. It's happening in Houston, Texas right now. And part of the frustration with all these situations, again, is that people can't agree on what's an injustice And what's not an injustice? And then if they can get to that point where they maybe agree on that, they can't agree on what to do about it or how to actually address it. Well, as the preacher looks at injustice in his world, what conclusion does he come to? What does he have to say? What attitude does he take? Because if life is meaningless like he claims it is, why even bother worrying? about injustice? Why bother addressing issues of injustice? And a question for us is, is there really any value or any point in trying to do anything about the injustice that we see around us? So with that, open to Ecclesiastes chapter 9, starting in verse 13. We're going to look at several different passages of Ecclesiastes this morning, working backwards a little bit, as you'll see why here in a few minutes. If you're using one of our chair Bibles, this will be found on page 474. And if you don't own a Bible, feel free to take one home with you today. But before we start reading in Ecclesiastes 9, let's pray and then we'll get started. Father, we're grateful for this morning. We're grateful for the fact that we could wake up 
uh, and have beds to sleep in last night, clothes to wear, uh, heating in our homes, God. Um, just the little things that we so often take for granted. And again, because of the injustice that is so common in our world, a lot of people don't have those things. And so, God, I pray that you would help us to truly step back and be grateful for just the incredible outpouring of your grace, uh, that we live where we live, that we live when we live, all of those things. And, Father, I pray that as we look at an injustice in our world, uh, we wouldn't just look at our world, we would look at what your word says uh, to kind of help keep things in perspective about what it all means and, and what we should do and is there really any hope in a world that seems so messed up. God, we love you, we praise you, we thank you for your son Jesus, the one who died for us as we just celebrated at communion. I pray that we would always keep that front and center. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Starting in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 13. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor, wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised, and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war. But one sinner destroys much good. The preacher starts out by giving this example of a poor, wise man from a small, wimpy town. He then gives the exact opposite example, an example of a great king with a powerful army. You can't have two characters who are more different than the poor, wise man from the small town and the great king with the powerful army. And against all odds... This poor wise man delivers his small town from the great king and his massive army. Now we hear that story and we think, okay, that's a nice inspirational story. A lot of the book of Ecclesiastes has been dark and pessimistic, but here's something to be happy about as we read. But here's the problem. Here's the injustice. That lowly man who delivered the town by his wisdom, he isn't remembered. The hero is forgotten. There's no fanfare, no parade, no reward. As soon as the people are back out of danger, they go back to ignoring the poor, wise man because they'd rather listen to fools who are louder. According to the preacher's example here, the wise are treated unjustly. This poor, wise man. It's often the loudest people who are heard, not the wisest people. And even though wisdom is much better than powerful weapons, like we just saw, the preacher says all it takes is one sinner to ruin all the good that wisdom brings about. The wise are treated unjustly. And to the preacher, this is vanity. This is meaningless. Let's jump backwards to Ecclesiastes 8, starting in verse 14. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, That there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. And I commend joy 
For man has no good thing under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes sleep, then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. So not only are the wise treated unjustly, like that man in that small town, but according to the preacher, so are the righteous, and so are the wicked. The righteous get what the wicked deserve, and the wicked get what the righteous deserve. Now, if you're one of those wicked people, God's injustice is a wonderful thing to celebrate. If you're one of the righteous people, it's a terrible thing to mourn. The preacher says that God's lack of justice in the world around him is frustrating enough to make him lose sleep at night. There's no use in trying to figure out why life works this way, why life is so cruel, so you might as well kick back and enjoy the meaningless pleasures that God has to offer you. The preacher would probably have a problem with what theologians often refer to as common grace. He doesn't like the fact that God causes rain to fall on both the righteous and the wicked. He doesn't like the fact that wicked men all too often have peaceful and joyous and prosperous lives. But even more than that, he's angry that not only does God send rain on the crops of the wicked, it certainly seems like God sends droughts to the crops of the righteous. For the preacher, this is injustice. This is vanity. This is meaningless. Now, before we go any further, do you ever have the same doubts as the preacher? Do you ever have the same frustrations? Because it's so easy for us to look at our world and see the unfairness and see the injustice and get completely and utterly overwhelmed. We can look at quotes from Martin Luther King Jr., this famous one, that injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We read that quote, and on the one hand, we're inspired to fight against injustice, but on the other hand, we're completely overwhelmed at just how massive that task really is. We look at the world around us, and we so often don't think there's any possible change. Nothing could ever be any different. The problems are so huge. The problems are so overwhelming. We look at a young woman shot and killed in her home when she's 12 weeks pregnant, and we say, all is vanity. We look at 150 or maybe even more people killed in cold blood in Paris, and we see that and say, all is vanity. We look at the world around us, and we're tempted to simply hang our heads and give up and declare, all is frustration. All is confusion. All is meaningless. But maybe the problem isn't just when you look around the world today, when you see the news or read the newspaper. Maybe your frustration with the injustice of the world comes from personal experience. Maybe you're like the poor man who chases after wisdom. You fear God, like we talked about last week. And yet all too often you are ignored and marginalized by the people around you. No one seems to care, no one seems to listen, and you feel this is an injustice. 
In those moments, you just want to look up at God and ask, what in the world is he doing? Why is God just sitting back and letting the world work like this in such an unjust way? Maybe you strive to obey God. You strive to embrace your identity as a person who has been made righteous by the blood of Christ. You do your best to live that out by the grace of God. And yet the crops of the wicked are well fed and your field is nothing but dust. In those moments you look up and you think, you know what, where's my reward? Is this really God's idea of justice? Is this really God's kingdom come the way Jesus said it was? Because if this is God's kingdom, then I don't really know that I want to be a part of that. The preacher is brutally honest with his doubts about God and the meaninglessness of life as he looks at the injustice and the unfairness and the suffering of the world. And if we're honest, maybe we have those moments of doubt and frustration and confusion ourselves. Let's pick up in Ecclesiastes 5, a third passage addressing this problem of injustice. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. So not only are the wise and the righteous and the wicked treated unjustly, the preacher says the poor are treated unjustly as well. He says that bureaucracy and leadership seem to be blissfully unaware of this injustice. Maybe if the people being treated unfairly, maybe if the people being oppressed actually had money or actually had something to contribute, maybe then the leaders would notice. But so far... They don't really seem to care. Yet God cares. Nehemiah called out wealthy leaders in Jerusalem who took advantage of people, leading them into poverty. Ezekiel called out religious leaders who fed themselves instead of feeding their sheep, leading them into spiritual poverty and leaving them to die. We see in passages like those that even God's people are tempted to ignore God's commands for the just treatment of the poor, the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, the oppressed. And sometimes the problem isn't that we actively ignore these people. Sometimes the problem is that we truly are blissfully unaware. We truly do buy into the lie that oppression and injustice, those things don't happen where we live, right? Well, they do. And even though we know it's a lie, we kind of like to keep believing the lie. We'd rather just not notice all that stuff and not have to think about it. But according to the preacher, injustice is everywhere. It affects the wise, the righteous, the wicked, and the poor. And in one way or another, it affects you and it affects me. But knowing all of this, how does the preacher view God? Knowing all of this, how does the preacher view the world? And how does the preacher view the life that God has given him? What's the conclusion that he comes to? Ecclesiastes 3, starting in verse 16. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice 
even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Chapter 4. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who were already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been And has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. In the first few verses, it seems like the preacher is trying to convince himself of everything he'd been taught for so long. He'd been taught for so long that one day, someday off in the future, God will eventually set things right. The world won't be like this forever. However, every single piece of evidence he sees in the world around him seems to indicate otherwise. It doesn't seem like injustice is any closer to being gone than it was a year ago, or ten years ago, or twenty years ago, according to the preacher. He says that men die like animals. He doesn't buy into the idea that man is somehow qualitatively different than the beasts. He just doesn't see it. He says there's no comfort For those treated unjustly. He even goes so far as saying, you know, I wish I was dead. That way I wouldn't have to see this stuff anymore. He even says, you know what, even better than that would be if I had never been born. Then I would have never seen the injustice of the world. Now, before you think that sounds like an extreme metaphor, it's basically the same thing as when people argue that, you know, I just don't want to bring kids into a world that's as messed up as ours. That's really no different than what the preacher is saying. Unfortunately, much of what the preacher says about life, if we're really honest about it, is true. He's right about some of this. The wise, the righteous, the wicked, and the poor are all too often treated unjustly. And sometimes the problems are so big, sometimes the cycles run so deep, Sometimes the oppressors have so much power that it seems like any attempt to make even the smallest dent in the injustice of the world would be completely and utterly useless. And to make matters worse, if that's not dark enough, it certainly seems like the one person who could do something about injustice, that person being God, he's content to just sit back and watch it all happen. If you picture God at some kind of big control room with a bunch of dials and knobs and buttons in front of him, the preacher would say, man, it sure looks like God spilled his coffee. 
on the motherboard. It's all vanity. It's all meaningless. It's all confusion. But as we've talked about so far in this whole sermon series, every single week, a question we have to ask is, does Christ cause us to have a different viewpoint than the preacher? Can Christ shine some kind of light on this book that seems so dark when taken on its own? The answer is yes. When we see the book of Ecclesiastes, and when we see the injustice of the world through the light and the lens of Christ, we can't just be content to throw up our hands at the problem of injustice and declare that all is vanity. That option is not given to us. But as we see injustice, and as we see unfairness, as we see suffering and senseless violence, what are we to do? How does looking at it through the light of Christ change anything? How do we respond? Well, a few suggestions. Number one, God's people are called to actively seek justice for those around us. Consider Micah chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Amos chapter 5, verses 21 through 24. I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. In both passages, God talks about the worthlessness of shallow and empty and heartless religious ritual. He says you can sing all you want, you can pray all you want, you can get together, you can have your services, but I'm not going to hear any of that stuff if you don't care about the injustice of the world. I don't want your sacrifices. I don't want your songs. I want you to do justice, is what God says. Now, Christians don't foolishly and naively believe that we can fix all the world's problems. That's not true. We can't fix all the world's problems. But we can start with the problems outside our front door. Because, again, injustice is everywhere. We can address the injustices in our schools, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our community. We can take it seriously, not turn a blind eye to it, and truly do it for the glory of God. Another suggestion, in addition to actively seeking justice for those around us, is that when we face injustice, if and when that time comes, we can suffer well. You know, we live in a world where we get so good at avoiding suffering, 
We're so very skilled at avoiding even the slightest discomfort that when suffering or injustice comes that we can't avoid, we often don't know how to suffer well. And yet the New Testament regularly talks about how Christians will face injustice. They will face persecution. They will face hardship specifically because of their faith. And for the most part, we're entirely exempt from that, most of us. But it doesn't mean that it can't happen sometime in the future. In our small group, we've been reading 1 Peter. and In chapters 1 and 2, Peter gives specific advice for Christians who are suffering about how to suffer well. A few things he encourages them to do. He encourages them to remember who they are in Christ. He encourages them to love one another. He encourages them to conduct themselves well among those who are causing their suffering. Jesus might have called that loving your enemies. In those moments when we face injustice, when nothing can be done to fix it, it is completely and utterly unavoidable. We suffer well. And the third suggestion, when we face that injustice that is unavoidable, that can't be fixed, and we are suffering through it. We trust in the perfect sufferer, that sufferer being Jesus. In 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 21, we read, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Peter intentionally echoes Isaiah 53, the passage about the suffering servant, the servant who faces injustice. And he says that Jesus faced the ultimate injustice, because when you really think about it, he's the only truly righteous person who's ever lived. And what happened to him? He suffered and died at the hand of wicked men like us. So in those moments where we face injustice, we entrust ourselves to God the way Jesus did, knowing that God judges justly. We remember how the perfect sufferer suffered well on our behalf and suffered the ultimate injustice in the way that we look at it. And finally, a fourth suggestion as we look at the problem of injustice in this world today. In those moments where we're tempted to just throw up our hands and give up and feel overwhelmed. When we watch the news and we read the newspaper and we say, you know what? Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Who even cares anymore? Can there possibly be a God out there who matters? In those moments, we look forward. We consider the future. Look at Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. 
And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Earlier, the preacher complained that as people face injustice, there is no comfort to be found. The oppressors have too much power. And yet Jesus says to his disciples that no matter how much they suffer injustice here, one day they will be comforted in his kingdom. Comfort will come. There is injustice under the sun. The preacher's right about that. But we look forward because under the sun isn't all there is. Injustice is a tragic reality in a fallen world. We're not going to fix it through ideas and education and government programs and charitable giving. All those things can be helpful. All those things can be good. But injustice is still going to exist. But that doesn't make life vain. It doesn't make life meaningless. It doesn't mean that God has somehow lost control of everything, like he bit off more than he could chew by creating the world. It simply means that we're pointed to something higher. When we see injustice and there's just something in our hearts and something in our minds that tells us this just isn't right, there's something wrong, there's something off, that's an indicator that maybe we need to look to something much bigger than what our world has to offer. We need to look for something that only God can provide. We need to look for a kingdom much bigger than our own. And until that time comes, when Jesus returns with power and glory, when his kingdom is truly ushered in once and for all, when tears are wiped away and those who mourn are comforted, until that time, we work for justice where we can even in seemingly insignificant ways. We suffer well when we face injustice. We keep our eyes on the perfect sufferer who suffered injustice for us. And we look forward to his return. And all along, we don't know what else to say, and we don't know what else to do, and we're so close to giving up. We echo some of John's final words in the book of Revelation. When we don't know what else to say, we simply say, come, Lord Jesus. And we look forward to that day. Let's pray. Father, again, we can't really blame anyone for looking at the world today and coming to dark and pessimistic conclusions like the preacher has. Sometimes we come to those conclusions ourselves. And yet, God, I pray that we would always keep in mind that that little part of us that says this is not how things are meant to be, that little part of us is right. That God has something bigger and better in store for us. Father, as we see things happen around us, as we see the injustice of others, as we experience injustice ourselves. I pray that you would help us to suffer well. 
I pray that we would keep our eyes on your son who suffered more injustice than any other human being as he suffered on the cross. And it wasn't just some chance thing. It wasn't just Jesus being in the wrong place at the wrong time. It wasn't a freak accident. He knew exactly what he was doing. His life wasn't taken from him by injustice. He gave up his life for our sake. Father, help us to keep our eyes on him. And Father, help us not to turn a blind eye to the injustice in our world today. Help us to not pretend it isn't there. Help us to open our eyes to it, that we might address it. That we would address injustice not as an act of earning your favor or somehow getting in your good side, but as an act of worship. God, we ask that you be with those who are suffering injustice right now. Not just in the stories that make the latest headlines, but in the things that happen perpetually, over and over again, in our own communities, in our own country, across the world. And Father, again, we look forward to that day when your kingdom will come. And in the meantime, we look forward and say, come, Lord Jesus. Because in the big scheme of things, in an eternity, that's the only solution. We love you. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you are not yet a follower of Christ, I pray that you take this opportunity to talk to one of our elders. They'll be happy to pray with you, happy to talk to you. If you just feel completely overwhelmed by some of the things you see and read and hear, and you just don't know what else to think and don't know where to go, talk to one of those guys. They'd be happy to sit down with you and just listen, offer a shoulder to cry on, whatever it is that you need during this time. So take advantage of that as we sing this final song. We're very, very grateful that you've chosen to worship here.